Are you talking about Kim's Convenience? No. This is Refigure with Chris and Reefer. A weekly dive into our favourite bits of culture, tech and diversity. Welcome to Refigure. No. I'm Reefer. And I'm Christopher. Thank you very much for listening. What are we talking about today? Refigure is your weekly spludge into the bludge. We have a thing at the beginning that already says that. I know, so we don't really need to. So, what are we going to talk about today? We went to see the Van Gogh exhibition at Tate Britain. Yeah, it's called Van Gogh and Britain. And we're also going to review the film Homecoming, which is Beyonce's film of her live shows at the Coachella Festival. Where is even Coachella? It's in the Californian desert, and she's added a bunch of documentary stuff around how she put the show together. So we'll talk about that. But first, Van Gogh at Von Gogh, another podcast I really love, the Wittertainment podcast, you know, Simon and Mark. They have had recently this whole hoo-ha about how to pronounce Van Gogh, and they've argued about it loads. And apparently it's, if you're from wherever he's from, it's Von Gogh. But I've always thought it was just Van Gogh. Van Gogh. What do you mean? Like, if you were Dutch? Yeah, you'd say Van Gogh. Well, maybe they do, but that sound doesn't exist in English. (laughs) My friend at college always used to argue really passionately that you should pronounce bagel, bagel, because he'd grown up amongst Jewish communities in South or in East London. I don't think so. I think he just met one Jewish person. (laughs) No, he really did. No, he did grow up among... Okay. Maybe that's true. I think it's Van Gogh. And you can say Gogh if you want to. Van Gogh. As, Van if Gogh. as if you're Scottish or something. Should we talk about that first? Yeah, go ahead. We went with our lovely friend Jenny to Tate Britain. It's our first Tate Britain trip of the year. And we went to see the Van Gogh. I shouldn't have talked about pronunciation because I feel all weird now about okay. pronunciation. Well, just, just go with it. Yeah, just I'll just like, try not to If you to say be Van Gogh, everybody who's listening to this podcast will know who you're talking about. Yeah. He's the bloke that's famous for sunflowers and cutting his own ear off. And starry, starry night. And starry, starry night. I really love Tate Britain. I nearly went to the wrong Tate on the way up, but Chris thankfully reminded me that it was at Tate Britain, not Tate Modern. I used to go to Tate all the time, Tate Britain, when I was growing up, when I lived in London, but it's pretty unrecognisable now, the way that the layout is of the space. There are different entrances now and there are cafes that never used to be there and it's very light and airy and there's a members bar right up at the top but it's also just two levels and it just feels wide and expansive whereas before it felt a little bit cramped because they had a lot of stuff in there and a lot of stuff in storage that didn't see the light of day until the Tate Modern opened up. I want to ask the question in two parts. What did you think of his work and getting the chance to see his paintings? And what did you think of the whole exhibition as a project? Okay, I like Van Gogh. I think his stuff is pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) But we have been spoiled because we went to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. So we've seen the room where there's like 25 sunflowers, for example. And we've seen a lot of his work 
already. So this take on it, you know, Van Gogh's Britain, um, I found a little bit light, lightweight, and a lot of stuff in there, obviously, was stuff that he was influenced by. So English scenes, so there were some constables at the beginning and stuff that I really find boring. Let's put it that way. That's it's boring. Fine. You can say it's boring. But the, it was nice to see his work next to some now long forgotten artists, actually, and the stuff that he's been influenced by. But there were some really tenuous links, I thought. Like they've got a couple of pictures of the Thames with some uh, the light reflects off the water in a really minor way. It's not part of like most of the pictures are like grey with like a bit of splurge of light light somewhere and then you've got sorry sorry night which just shines it just shines like it's so beautiful it is like you're there and you can see that light reflecting and the boats and the and the and the stars in the sky and i had that kind of feeling of uh, the magicalness of some of van gogh's paintings in every single room like there's loads of dirge and then you see from a distance one of his portraits, self-portraits, or you see one of his paintings from a distance and that's what you were drawn to because there is a magical quality about Van Gogh's work. I don't think it was the way that they, these paintings were lit at all. It is the the aliveness of those paintings up close. And people were take funny because Chris put some on the Instagram on Refigure UK of people taking selfies and standing in front of pictures and and like leaning in to sort of look at the brush strokes but what people should do i believe is just like let it wash over you and don't take photos of every single painting and don't try and memorize the flipping thing on the wall about what happened and because that's just someone's opinion just let the art speak to you and just look at it just look at it as if you're able to have time with it in your living room and like Look at the little people at the front. <laughs> the types of different kinds of yellow you can get in a painting. Yeah, his work is beautiful and I really do enjoy his stuff. What would you like to say about the Van Gogh? First you get a bit about the time that Van Gogh spent in London, which was about three years, just under three years. He spent in London working first as an art dealer and then trying to be a teacher. And that half the exhibition is the British painting or work from all over the world, but the stuff that he picked up in Britain that influenced him. And then the second part of the exhibition is more about artists who were influenced by him when his work first started to get well known. And there is a particular exhibition that happened in the 20s in London. So basically, you've got this kind of thing of two halves where the first half, some of the art is amazing because it's Van Gogh stuff, but the intellectual premise barely holds up and this is just me going in as a puncher I'm not an art historian but it felt quite a lot of the bits where they'd say look at a painter that did this and look at another painter that did this all now Van Gogh's done this as you said <laughs> the links were really tenuous and kind of like oh he did a bit of a reflection and so so did he and basically they didn't convince me of their argument but I got to see these absolutely stunning pictures you're right the there is one classic sunflowers painting in the exhibition it's gorgeous but we've seen a bunch of them beautiful stars over the river that's that's gorgeous as well a couple of self-portraits are amazing his there is something there okay and then in the second half of the exhibition 
the argument, the intellectual argument's much more convincing. These other artists are clearly massively influenced by Van Gogh. He has changed the way people use paint and changed the way that people focus on things. And it's extraordinary. The influence is clearly there. But so many of those paintings, even though they're by really successful, famous artists, aren't exciting enough for me. They aren't. Um... What about when, uh, towards the end, when we're not looking at his contemporaries or people influenced with him by him while he was still alive, but then the room where there's a little snippet of the Van Gogh film with Kurt Douglas, random, and then there was three... Um, Francis Bacon and he said Frank Bacon which would be a better name Frank Bacon old Frankie Bacon <laughs> old Frankie Bacon because you're a fan I love I, Francis I've never, Bacon yeah. I've never seen those ones before but I was a bit like oh god I'm done now because it's quite an exhausting exhibition when you've got tons of people in there as well um, it was really popular that's the best of the other painters maybe and they make their intellectual case completely fine for that that Bacon's influenced by Van Gogh but by then I don't really care of course he is by 20 years after his death certainly by 40 50 years after his death he's already regarded as one of the great painters of all time or whatever so of course they're influenced by him if you don't buy into the premise the problem is what's that exhibition doing there you need to buy into the premise completely for it to be at Tate Britain arguably it should be at the National Gallery or yeah I didn't even twig the whole Britain thing until we were well deep into it. But if that's what we're doing now at the Tate, is like there's only exhibitions that are vaguely related to Britain, that's a bit weird. You can buy crocheted little key rings of Van Gogh effigies themselves. I have a cro- crocheted Christy T with a guitar, uh, just letting you know. Um, I thought that was mine. I thought you got me that for my birthday. Yeah, I'm just saying that I have one, <laughs> you know. They exist. Somebody thought the Van Goghs were me. Not, I don't think seriously. Anyway, <laughs> he's got a ginger beard and no ears at all. Not even one ear. That would have been better, wouldn't it? If they'd crocheted one little ear and then a bowl hat. And then they're all stuffed into a box. It was like, there's a box of crocheted Van Gogh. I mean, I don't know. It's retail. It's People go to the gallery as a day out with their family. They want to look at some pictures and think that they've seen some art. And they don't want to think about mental illness and artist creative process. They just want to see some flowers and take their photo in front of Starry Night and go and buy a blooming crocheted bowler-hatted ginger effigy of a dead artist and then job done. Did you see how much it was, though? No. It was £35. Shut up. (laughs) It was. The big ones. 35 quid. I want one now. Probably selling really well. Okay, so the thing is, even though we're taking a piss a bit out about this exhibition, I would really recommend it for anyone who hasn't yet had the opportunity to see some Van Gogh paintings because... There is a good chunk of them. Like, it's a quite a generous exhibition and they've gathered them from all over the shop. It's, like, well hung. <laughs> it's really well hung. If you And so it's worth seeing anyway. Yeah, and I think that sometimes people go to an exhibition like this and you pay the money and it's not cheap to go to see exhibitions anymore. They go along and they feel like they have to engage with every single piece of art in there in case they miss something, right? I don't think you should go into a gallery like that and think just do a little scan around the room see what you like the look of what catches your eye and go and look at that go and stand in front of that starry night for 10 minutes if you want don't waste your time on some of the pieces that look a bit not so interesting 
It's called Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Van Gogh. <laughs> it's called Van Gogh and Britain, and it's at Tate Britain until the 11th of August. Uh, Shall I do a little intro for the Beyonce? Yeah, go ahead. Last year, Coachella became Beachella. Some people don't know what Coachella is, mate. Last year, the huge American rock festival that's better known for alternative rock bands, Coachella, hosted Beyonce, headliner, first black woman headliner, and only the third woman headliner they've had. She produced an extraordinary headline performance. She took marching bands and dancing troops from the historically black colleges, which is a particular group of universities in the United States, and built a massive show called Homecoming, where these kind of marching bands were her backing band, and turned her headline performance into a celebration of black history, a very specific part of black American history. I mean, that concert did the rounds a lot as a bootleg, and a lot of other people, I think, have already seen it, but we didn't watch it as a bootleg because we're nice and legal. And now it's gone up on Netflix as a two-hour movie where she's taken over an hour and a half of the, the live show. Also split between the two performances because Coachella Festival happens twice on two weekends, pretty much the same festival each weekend in the same place, but it happens twice. Anyway, so she's taken that footage and expanded it with a kind of a load of documentary elements connecting both her incredibly hard work rehearsal process to get this show together and also drawing together the historical connections and telling us why she did this show and using a load of black history and a load of iconic artists and philosophers to explain what she was getting at in the show. I mean, I fucking loved it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant, both the show and the film. But I'm really curious to hear what you think, Rifa, because you've seen Beyonce live and you're probably mm. a bigger fan than me. She speaks to you, ma'am. She's a real inspiration. She is so hardworking. I think she's really genuine. I know some people don't think that about her, but Lemonade was certainly an album that took her to a whole other level and she told some really amazing stories and wove something that was a beautiful piece of art and if you've not seen the visual album of lemonade you can get it on amazon you buy the cd and then comes with the dvd of the film in it and then you can watch it in your whatever you use to watch dvds so to see her really put herself on the line to put together a production where she's so involved at every single stage every audition every person who performed and she was really putting herself out there to sort of get students who are pretty much amateurs although they do this as a you know thing uh baton twirling and crazy dancing and the drummers you know everything she was involved in every single sequin on every single costume she was involved in but also she just talked really frankly about being a mum and having twins and how traumatic that was for her and her family and her body and how she's spent a lot of time on her work on this production when she should have been at home with her, her babies that's what she her words not mine and ha that balance was quite difficult for her she's really frank about that and it's just really human and um i just found the whole thing really exciting because she really wanted to 
give these young people a chance and uh, to work with her and to produce something that they will remember for the rest of their lives. Her film also puts in some iconic quotes from Ira Angelou and Ian Simone and Audrey Lord. But it's just a brilliant, vibey film. And uh, if you like watching concerts and dancing about in your living room to Beyonce, you'll have a great time. In some ways, the format is quite a traditional format it's a big live show with a load of bits explaining how the live show came together i've seen that a hundred times but the ambition and the scope of the live show is both huge and also although any live show by a big solo artist is self-serving it's a self-serving project right and yet there is something else going on that's more important than beyonce that she taps into to make an a huge point and to give those individual opportunities but also to tell another story quite apart from the story that she's telling in her songs and her stories on the stage getting the hbcus and getting their homecoming bands and putting that on the stage like sometimes she's got 200 people on stage with her it's still a big pop show it's still got all her big hits or some of her big hits and it's still got, as you say, like there's the bit with Destiny's Child and there's a bit with Solange dancing and there's a bit with her husband coming on and doing some rapping. And also, all of this history is both genuinely personal to her, a perfectly legitimate stuff for her. It's the grist for her show. She's That's what she can put a show on with. And that's totally fine. She would have still rocked Coachella if she'd got her rock band or her the bat live band and a bunch of sexy dancers and done a show i mean and you've seen her live and we saw her headline glastonbury she smashed it she can do that anyway so it's it's that commitment to doing something over and above what she needed to do is extraordinary in some ways what's magic about it isn't that it's tight it's that it's loose so the show is really together it's an incredible live show but there are these moments where it's not choreographed in the way it would be if it was entirely professionals just do it and I don't mean to say it's sloppy in any way there's that brilliant bit of rehearsal where she says she's gently chiding everyone going look we're not there yet we know we can get there but at the moment does she say it's janky which is a great word she says it's janky she also loves to show herself on social media with professional photographs of a family on holiday and that sort of thing like they're very controlled you know her halloween pics if you've never seen if you don't follow beyonce on instagram you're missing out on her halloween pics with her family (laughs) but she she shows herself overweight in this program and also you know tired and without makeup as well and so i just yeah i think it's it's important for lots of different people to see different sides to her and that she's a human person even though she's kind of like a goddess as well and even though it's still all it's still all carefully controlled. So clearly the construct of Beyonce is different to the to the real person, the actual person who get, gets up and feeds her kids and does whatever. But I'm saying that clearly she has something different to the other people. And it's about community, I think. And it's about having people around her who have got her back and the real people around her who, who love her and support her. And in my opinion, it's project management skills. Boom! Like, what's the one thing that Beyonce has got that Whitney Houston didn't have, that Amy Winehouse didn't have, that Nina Simone didn't have, that Roberta Flack didn't have, and then other artists of different ethnicities and of different genders as well didn't have? She is like one of the fucking best project managers the world has ever seen. 
a visionary director. I mean, in a way, that's what she may... I'd love to see her direct movies. She can clearly direct great movies. The Lemonade film was a brilliant piece of filmmaking. This live show is so constructed and it's a huge show and it's so rehearsed. And then on the second night they performed it, a woman in the audience has managed to get Beyonce's outfit from the week before and is wearing it. And Beyonce, in the midst of doing a song and doing a huge choreographed thing going down the the sort of um, Runway. runway... In the midst of that, she's able to break off from what she's doing and going, hey, I see you. That's amazing. You've got my outfit from last week. How do you do that so fast? And then drop back into the show. And it's like this spontaneous moment. So not only did that happen, did she manage to have both the tightness and the looseness of control of the show to have that happen, but she's made the decision to leave it in the edit as well. Like that is, that's a decision. That's a conscious decision. And that's great directing. Can I wrap it up a bit? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Say, <laughs> and just say... Yeah, so Beyonce Homecoming is on Netflix. And to coincide, she has put up the album Lemonade on the streaming services, the other streaming services, because I think it was exclusive to Tidal before. But now it's on... So you can get it on Spotify and Deezer and stuff or whatever the streaming service are, Apple Music. So I've seen a ton of headline festival sets... And this is one of the very best I've ever seen, possibly the best festival headline. The best, certainly the best use of a festival headline I've ever seen. And Lemonade is the best piece of pop music of the 21st century. Boom. What are you reading for? 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 What are you reading, Chris? Um, I know you normally do the poetry, but I'm really enjoying this book of poems. <laughs> I'm going to put that on a T-shirt. You normally do the poetry. Well, you do. Sometimes you read out poems. This is Susanna Evans' first full book poetry collection. She's a terrific poet. Full disclosure, I think I've actually stayed in her house because she's a friend of a friend and I think mm. I've stayed there on tour. Uh, the book is called Near Future. It's out on Nine Arches Press and it's a set of very well-put-together poems that are very edible, nice language, easy, edible? like oh, straightforward. Oh, digestible. Yeah. Nice. Poems. But they have this kind of unfolding theme of being kind of near future sci-fi, but not in a kind of nerdy ideas way. They are personal poems and it's about apocalypse and it's about the climate catastrophe and it's about the breakdown of personal relationships inside that context. It's about empty urban spaces and... They are just fantastic poems because she's got a really nice light touch and each one's got a proper idea. As you get there, she can bring in really some really bleak, some really bleak stuff and kind of um, hit you with it. So the ideas are really powerful. I love it. I've really enjoyed it a lot. I should do the reefer thing and read one. Shall I read one? So this is Susanna Evans, The New Tenants. When we go, the ivy will slam a fist through the double glazing push its fingers in between the bricks. It will sling ropes around our walls and pull them down. Like the landlord always feared, this time next year the whole house will be a hive of late September bees, susurrating like a broken TV. The flower beds are dead, and all that's left are these bunched blooms, pale green, the end of the season. The honey they make is dark as the mornings, bitter as the frost that is waiting. Bleak. She's got a real gift. It's great. So, Susanna Evans, Near Future. Nice. Um, what, what, pray, privy, reefer, 
is you reading? Well, I'm still reading that. <laughs> what? Why are you talking? You must have been reading this magazine for like six months now. No, but it's only it's a quarterly, so you're supposed to take your time with it, dude. It's the Womankind magazine that I bought ages ago. This particular edition is about Cuba, and there is an article which I can't find now. Hang on. They do a profile on an African-American artist called Daniel Minter. I started reading this not thinking it was a bloke um, because it's a little interview that's um, about why... Why did he... Like, they asked some pretty basic questions, but the work is stunning. I'll see if I can put some of it up on the old uh, internet. They ask him why he started painting and he talks about, like, you know, he used to just take found objects, like sticks and cans and make start drawing on them as a drawing surface but then he talks about how he started to get interested in a story that he'd heard about at the Malaga island in the states where there was a small island community of black white and mixed race people that existed on this little island off the coast of Maine that got forcibly evicted and uh, he started to explore who these people were and created these beautiful paintings they look really surreal and the characters in them are these black characters and they've all got this white ghostly sort of almost like lace all over them and i've not seen anything like it i love to see these in the flesh if you like some of the people look like they're drowning and some of them are repetitive images of people in sorrow as well and it was almost cathartic because these people were forcibly removed in 1912 and there's this whole way of dehumanizing them where the stories around them was that they were escaped slaves black concubines wild people and squalid degenerates and that's how they just basically got away with it you know created these stories about these people he went to research the historical context and the and the descendants of these people that were on the Malaga Island and created something called the Portland Freedom Trail so that people could go back and connect with their ancestry. I thought it was amazing. That's really nice. Better share some images though. Will do. Cool. Do you have anything to plug? Um, yes. The Brighton Festival is starting from May and I'm on the full disclosure, I'm on the board at the Lighthouse, which is um, the arts organisation in the middle of Brighton, and we're putting on um, something called Distorted Constellations. So on the 2nd of May, there's the opening ceremony, and anyone can come along to that. That sounds great. And there's some Haitian dance as well on the 3rd, a workshop. That sounds great. Um, I'm not going to plug anything this week. I'm in the studio, in the music recording studio next week helping to um, produce some noise for the Portland singer Olivia Aubrey, who I mentioned in the first series of the podcast. I'm excited about that. Going to go up to London and do some recording. Goodbye. I'm not saying anything singing because you just keep putting it in. The best thing to do would be to leave a nice review. 1,000. We need 1,000 reviews. Yeah, because then we could beat everyone else. Because then we'd be the most reviewed podcast. Love you lots. Bye. Fly up.